So Lisa, I hear that you've got a great topic for the podcast this week. What are we going to talk about? Well, okay. I was thinking yesterday, I was talking with a friend of mine and she was telling me that she had a meeting at 10 a.m. And, you know, I inquired as to what that was. And she was meeting with a potential client to offer her advice um, and um, about this particular business because she herself studied her own business and accrued all this experience. And so this individual was now picking her brain about how to do that. And I said to her, are you charging her for that time? Well, Mm. no, I'm not, you know, because it's just a conversation, you know, maybe it will lead to something. And I said, you have got all this experience. You've got years of building this business. You worked your butt off, right? Ooh. You did. You mm-hmm. have something to offer this person. You should be charging for the time. And it was because you had said that to me and it was <laughs> in my head and I was channeling, channeling Shauna. Um, I don't think she did charge, but it made me think about, we should talk about the fact that women in particular really struggle to charge their worth for services that they offer. Mm, absolutely. And I can see how our listeners who might be coaches and professionals in, in endurance sport may want to hear this. So let's jump into it. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, I know that uh, we might be on polar opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to talking about money and how we charge and just all of that. It just seems like you're a little apprehensive, whereas I'm like at the high dive, ready to jump in like immediately to have the conversation. So tell me a little bit about that and where kind of that that money it comes from. I have a good friend of mine, Sean Strickland, um, who's a pastor down in Arkansas, and she uses this language of money ick. And so Mm. when you told me that story, that was the first word I thought of. So tell me a little bit about that. I don't know. I just, I really struggle and I've struggled for a long time. When I first launched my coaching business, my triathlon and running coaching business, I agonized over what I should be charging people, you know, per month for the various packages that I could offer. You know, I did my research, I went online and, you know, I ended up settling on some fees that were likely well under (laughs) what I should be charging. And then at some point later, Mm -hmm. another woman had said to me, you should not be charging any less than a hundred dollars. Like, that should be your minimum that you're charging, right? And I was charging less than a hundred dollars. Right. So right. um, you know, and so it's just been on my mind because, you know, as I'm picking up these consultant gigs around DEI and other evaluation and research, you know, I'm having this inner conflict all the time, right? About what should I charge and am I gonna price myself out of the market and what's reasonable, you know, and there's a lot of conflicting information on the, on the interwebs, you know, Mm -hmm. and I just wondered like, do men have this conversation with themselves? (laughs) Right, exactly. Do they think through this process? And, you know, I think what's interesting about that feeling of money ick is that, you know, I do think it's based on how you're socialized in many ways, um, whether it's socialization as a woman or socialization in your industry and what we do, because, you know, I had this whole money ick feeling for a long time, um, not because I was a woman per se, it was partially that, but then partially my industry, which is woman dominated. You know, there are a lot of women educators. Mm. And so given that, you know, I've always kind of tied those together. Um, but yeah, it just seems to be this challenging conversation that women 
women have in their heads. And I wonder if men think about that or if they just shoot for the stars and, you know, whatever comes in after that is okay versus we're starting on the lower end and folks are, you know, they're chomping at the bit knowing that we're qualified, we're educated, they're going to do right, you know, and try to be fiscally responsible by their organization and just take whatever we might offer them. And so, you know, I've, mm-hmm. I haven't had as much of a challenge around that because I, I remember being very little and my godfather was the one that always had relatively deep pockets. And so I just uh, learned from a very young age, hey, if you want 10 bucks to go to the store this weekend, you better go ask your godfather. And I would ask and ask. And and I have done that for years as a child. I no longer do it as a functioning adult, obviously. But um, some of that, it just reminds me of that every time I have to put together a bid or a proposal. It reminds me of go back and ask Big Kenny, your godfather, what you need. You know, I do that even when I'm pulling together proposals. But I realize that not everyone has had that type of socialization and kind of what's that wall that we need to bust mm-hmm. through to start asking for what we're worth. I'm, I'm not sure how we bust through that wall necessarily. Yeah, I think the socialization piece is really interesting because there's definitely a gender piece to this in terms of the socialization. Mm-hmm. But obviously your family mm-hmm. and the way kind of you communicated about money and that changed it for you. So it kind of worked in opposition to perhaps that gender socialization that was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I used to do um, career advising for social work students who were getting their master's degrees. And there are mostly women. So it's a woman-dominated field again. And um, in that process the women always struggled to negotiate their starting salary to the point where they didn't. But the men I advised always negotiated like five to $10,000 more than the starting offer. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's definitely a clear gender line there. And, you know, and I think one of the exercises that women need to start doing um, is something that a good friend of mine, LaShawn Holland, she tried to kind of coach me through this and I thought it made complete sense, Uh, taking as much value out of it as I could. She wanted me to sit down and mathematically calculate how much I was worth based on my education, based on experience. Mm. So, you know, all the degrees and, you know, internships and study abroad and all these experiences that feed into whatever, whatever I'm doing, whether it's coaching, whether it's um, DEI specific work, Add all that up as to how much I paid to get that information, whether it's the degree or whether it's an experience, and then divide that by how much time I put into it. And she said, that should be your starting, uh, starting fee per hour. And when I did that, I realized I'm probably charging one quarter of what I'm really worth based Mm. on all the money Mm -hmm. and energy I put into what I have in my brain. And so, you know, given that, you know, I I laugh when I tell my students this because I'm trying to kind of build their courage in these ways as well. But, you know, I look at some of my students who are more educated than me. Um, Some of them have, you know, two or three masters and then they went on and got a doctorate too. I'm thinking to myself, goodness, you have at least a half a million dollars worth of education in your brain and you're charging these people 25, 50 bucks an hour. Mm -hmm. Let's rethink that. Not because uh, we're not, uh, we don't have humility and not that we're not grateful, but we don't do this. I never have to coach male students through that process. Come to think of it. Every student that I've talked to about what they now charge as consultants or student, or even as uh, researchers, it's been Mm. women. 
Mm-hmm. You're right. It's been women. Absolutely. And so I think we need to go through that mathematical uh, yeah. formula of how much have we already put into this. But, you know, Lisa, I remember too, and I don't know if you have that uh, research off the top of your head, but I do remember us talking specifically about how women constantly uh, devalue or undervalue what skill sets they bring. And it just seems to be across the board, women underestimate their skill sets and men overestimate their skill sets. And we wonder why we're kind of behind uh, when it comes to socioeconomic status and our earnings. I don't know if you remember Mm -hmm. that study that we talked about before, but I see it play out and it sounds like you you hear it, uh, see it play out as well in your work. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I I am grasping at the memory of that study, but it was something like, um, you know, if there's 12 skills requested of a applicant for a job and the woman only has eight of them, she won't apply. But if the guy only has eight of them, he'll just throw his hat in. um, Uh, Gotcha. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, it's a bit of a cycle, isn't it? Because um, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's like an individual woman's fault. But it's about that socialization and messages you're getting from your family, messages you're getting from your culture and your environment and your neighbors and your school, you know, about your worth. And then that then you then you go in and you undersell yourself and then that just reinforces the problem. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like a self-fulfilling cycle, whereas. If you, mm-hmm. if you break that cycle and you go in and say, this is what I'm worth because of all this experience I have, then it shifts the conversation. But that it's that part that I think feels really hard. And I feel a bit, mm. it feels a bit arrogant for me to do that. Right. Which I know right. is a totally ridiculous thing to feel like I know mm-hmm. it in my head, mm-hmm. but I can't, mm-hmm. like, I can't get past it. Well, and I think part of it too, though, because if you think about it, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, triathlon coaching, run coaching, or if it's diversity, equity, and inclusion work, this is, in my opinion, service-oriented work. We do it because we want to bring value to people's lives. We do it because uh, we want to support individuals to be better, uh, to be better people, to be better organizations. It's very value-laden. And that's the challenge that I've had consistently in DEI spaces is that you know, I, I think it breaks down some of the stereotype that, oh, well, if you wake up a woman, if you wake up black, if you wake up Jewish, if you wake up whatever oppressed group, then that that identity in and of itself is your skill set. And that's not the case. And so, you know, when it comes to DI work, it is very much a profession. You have a PhD in intercultural communication. I mean, all of that, it's an actual profession that's layered upon your identity as a woman, your identities, all all these things. And so I think that is also a level of conditioning that it's kind of like Mm -hmm. that business model of, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you approach, how do you approach DEI work as an organization? Do you approach it because it's the right thing to do? Do you approach it because your market has changed where, you know, some of the demographics may have changed? Do you approach it because economically it's sound and the bottom line looks really good? Why do you approach it? And Yes, as much as I would love for everybody that does diversity, equity, and inclusion work to approach it from a value-laden place where it's the right thing to do, it's the fair thing to do, it's the equitable thing to do, I have learned the hard way over many years that that is simply not the case, and it may never be the case for some people and some organizations. And so that's when you have to approach people from a market from the marketplace and also from economics. Well, from the marketplace and from economics, you and I both know that there are a few people that do what we do, but not that many people who do what we do. 
when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion work, measurement, data, so forth, and doing all of that at once, there's not that many people that do that work. And so it it almost forces you to articulate yourself as a professional and not just, oh, this is a little hobby that I do because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a profession just like someone is a chemist or a plumber or a barber. It's it's a profession. Um, and I, I think that it's so value-laden that that kind of robs the, yeah. the profession from the work. And it also robs our pockets at the same time, especially for women, if we don't you know, mm -hmm. couch it in that type of language. That's a great point about it being value-laden work and therefore it is undervalued because I see that with social work too, right? Or any, um, yeah, like you said, service-oriented something um, that there's an expectation that you'll mm -hmm. do it for less money because you're just this like great person who, you know, is willing to like work 70 hours for hardly any money mm -hmm. with student loans mm -hmm. out the wazoo because it's like for the greater good. And then, you know, you and I have both been approached countless times to offer our um, services and information and expertise for free in the endurance sports right. space around yes. this diversity, equity yes. and inclusion, right? As though, um, yes. you know, we have an endless well of pro bono opportunities and that's not to say that <laughs> you and I don't offer that right? right but we can't if we offered that yes, all the time we, right. we would not be able to pay our bills um, absolutely that's right well you're right on it because you know committees and so forth where people have asked uh you know asked you to lend your services I'm thinking to myself wait a minute this is what I do professionally this is what I do for a living and so Yes, it is very much value-laden work, but I have um, responded, and I know my responses may seem very callous, but most professionals in other industries would respond similarly um, in that, thank you for seeking me out. Thank you for the referral from whoever. However, I'm unable to provide pro bono at this time. This is my schedule, my fee of services. Um, and given that, if you would like to engage with me, then great. If not, then we can move right along. But, you know, that circles me back to your um, original piece of that. <laughs> I have probably written some scathing social media posts specifically about picking of the brain. No, Shauna does not do that. Shauna did that for many years to my own detriment. I could probably be almost a millionaire at this point if I had stopped allowing people to pick my brain like... <laughs> 15, 20 years ago. Um, and and I, I do consider the source of you know, who asked me for input, et cetera, but I don't do the brain picking anymore. And I think about what am I offering? And it sounds like, um, you know, when I get the request or the question, I have to think through, is that question literally an easy free question? Is this a question where we need to engage on another level that actually costs a price? Or is this question a level where this is like premier, only a small group of VIPs get this type of information or intellectual property from me? And that's how I choose to respond. And it took me a long time to get to that arc of listening to a question or a request around DEI work or around coaching and deciding literally if there's a price tag attached to it and how much that price tag should be. It was tough. Mm. And I know mm. that just brings back the whole conversation, but that's how, that's when things took a turn for me as far as making sure that I actually found my worth. And that was tough. And I, I don't know mm -hmm. uh, whether that requires a sliding scale or what have you, but I did have to have a change in heart in empowering myself to recognize how much I put into what I know. And so I don't know if you 
you know, have thought through that through your money ick and thinking through, you know, are we ready to kind of reevaluate what a sliding scale is or the fees or how are you starting to make decisions around that now, if I may ask, um, mm. or not yet, you know, that may be a growing edge too, which is completely fine. Yeah, it is a growing edge. And I haven't, I haven't peaked in my arc <laughs> yet. Um, and, right, you know, right. just, just thinking about the nonprofit piece, because that's primarily where my work is situated. And then endurance sport, there's a lot of um, organizations that don't make a lot of money, right? Or that are, in fact, nonprofits. And there's this um, theory in the nonprofit world called the nonprofit starvation cycle, which is essentially you are doing more with less constantly. And so it's like an ever decreasing cycle and that you end up operating on this bare bones budget to do all this like amazing work. And because you manage to do it, then you don't get more money, grant funders or foundations or whatever, don't give you the money. Right. And so mm. or the, your board says, no, we're not going to hire any more staff. And so it's just this, it, they, you know, the nonprofit just kind of like shrinks in terms of infrastructure and resources, but the output is it anticipated or expected to be the same? Um, right, right. You know, and I, I wonder how that plays out in the endurance sport industry in terms of your coaching business, or if you're a race director, or you know, you have a you have a nonprofit that's attached to foundation or something like that. Um, and then, you know, who's doing that work? I mean, my bet would be that it's mostly women who are doing the nonprofit work. Not always, but I would say, you know, if we took ten thousand people in the nonprofit industry. Um, a big chunk of them would be women identified people. Um, and so if each of us are struggling around that arc for different reasons, then we're pretty mm -hmm. much probably all just undercharging. Right. And mm -hmm. that's okay. Right. So now I have a question for you. Where is the place for allyship, woman to woman allyship in the context of charging what you're worth? So let's say mm. I'm go back several years. I'm starting out as a coach right? What, you know, what would, what could I do differently in terms of maybe like reaching out to allies or what could women who are already coaches, established coaches have done for me? What do you think? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm just thinking about thinking back to a time when um, I proposed a, a particular amount per hour um, to an organization and a woman within the organization that had been reviewing proposals for years came back to me and said off the record, Hey, I'm just letting you know that we so appreciate your proposal. It was a very strong proposal. But before I share this with my board or with whoever decision makers, I know based on my history in this organization that this is an amount that men were charged and it's it was double or even triple sometimes what I was asking for. And so she said off the record, please go back, adjust your wonderful proposal. But I think you should be competitive with the men that have historically been hired for this role. And I was so grateful because they yeah. could have just accepted what I offered and moved forward. But, you know, a woman stopped what she was doing and actually stopped the process, paused the process in and of itself because she cut that off to the board and they could be making a decision right now. But instead, she stopped the process, circled back, asked me to resubmit, and they still accepted the amount that I sent back, which I believe was double, if I'm remembering correctly, double what I originally proposed. Well, are we doing that for each other? Or, you know, if you have a friend that's a coach or if you have someone who, who's a coach and you look on their website and you see their uh, their schedule, their fee schedule, and it's prohibitively lower than a man or a male coach that you know, 
then why not strike up a conversation with them and say, hey, I looked at three other coaches of men and they're charging double, sometimes triple what you are. Have courage and go after it yourself because obviously there's a market for it because these guys have have uh, athletes uh, that are on their roster. So if they can do that, then you can too. What does that look like to continue, you know, reminding each other that it's okay to ask for your worth, to expect your worth? I think that kind of courage in and of itself, I think we need right. to make that kind of viral, you know, just kind of make that viral in some way. So I would start there. Mm-hmm. Not quite sure what should happen next, but I, I would definitely start there as being fruit of something to do. Yeah. Now, if I, you know, the person that had shared with me that I shouldn't be charging any less than a hundred, like that should be the lowest amount I charge for my coaching was mm-hmm. a woman. So I'm deeply grateful Uh, for that. So she pushed me and actually Mm -hmm. it was another woman recently that pushed me about my hourly rate and you have pushed me about my hourly rate. And yes, I do feel, Uh I feel ick, right. But I'm trying to move move through the ick. And um, (laughs) I feel like there's probably so many listeners on here who this resonates with because it's, there's no way it's just me. And then you historically that have felt this way, right? Uh Uh-huh. Right. Oh yeah. We, we definitely are not the only ones. And, you know, I think that's, uh, <laughs> we're, we're working against ourselves in that way. And so I'm just thinking about across the industry, you know, how can we continue to position ourselves? And I know there are other variables, you know, I realized that, you know, for example, there are some athletes that may or may not want to work with a woman, for example, or some organizations that, you know, even think about that, um, that gender piece, even when looking to hire or engage someone. And so, you know, I don't want to, overlook that and act like that's not a variable. It is most certainly a variable. So we need to hold that in place too. Um, but, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, I, I'm very much a person that thinks about, you know, put your money where your mouth is. You are telling me that uh, my coaching is valuable, or you're telling me that the DEI work that Lisa and I do is important. You're not telling us that financially. You're not. Right. Um, And so given that if I'm asked to sit on the board of whatever endurance sport organization and they're charging three, three and sometimes four figures for registrations for one athlete, you can afford, you can afford to put something into it. And so I think maybe Lisa, we might need to kind of think this through a little bit around the ask. So like we mentioned before around, you know, boards or organizations, nonprofits, what have you, some of them The first step is usually they come to us and ask us to serve on a committee or a board. The first step usually is never, we want to hire you. We want to engage your services. And there's something to that in particular when it comes to DEI work, whether it's in sport or education, what have Mm. you. And I I need to do that. That bothers me a bit because why is it that the first inclination for something that is has been touted as valuable to not put value into making it happen. Like, why are we continuously being asked? Why do you think we're being continuously asked to mm. sit on committees rather than be hired to do the actual work? If, if I have, God forbid, if I have a plumbing in my house, I don't call the plumber and ask them if they can volunteer their services. I call and find out what is your rate because I need your services. We don't do that with this type of value-laden work. And I'm, I'm just wondering why that's the approach to go directly to volunteer and pro bono rather than uh, treat it as a profession, I guess. I, I have no good answer for that question. Yeah, I don't have a good answer <laughs> either. And I think, but I think there is the pattern is around the value piece that you had mentioned just now and then earlier, right? That if something is about improving um, society, culture, wellness, therefore 
um, we should all want to offer that for free, right? And so I think that that translate, uh, translates a little bit with coaching, right? Because it's a wellness-oriented service. And so what does it mean right. for someone who's right. looking for a coach because they want um, to do a specific race or they want to, you know, get into a particular sport and then they kind of balk at the cost of doing that, like the coach's expertise doesn't matter, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and so you know, and it's education, uh, like serving, right? Value-laden. Right. Teachers are paid horrifically, you know? Right, Um, right. Same with, uh, you know, medical field with nurses and other practitioners who aren't um, MDs, right? They're not paid well, and it's a service-oriented field. So they're like, we're all independently wealthy and just do this for fun versus, you know, to put food Mm. on the table. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And and I think, you know, one thing that we've talked about before on this podcast in particular is, um, you know, the inherent cost to coaches generally, but then female coaches specifically, because, you know, let's say, for example, I want to go and get a certification in whatever, it costs me the registration of the certification. As a parent, I have to make sure that there's childcare. Uh, it, given that I may have another full-time job, I may need to take a day off that may or may not be paid. And so I'm incurring these other expenses that were already in place because I'm a woman to begin with. So it feels like this everlasting dirty snowball that just continues to get bigger and bigger Mm. and we're not interrupting this snowball. And so, you know, for coaches, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, well, I want to hire you to teach, you know, to teach me how to swim. I'm, I'm an adult um, beginner swimmer. Well, you know, how much did I pay for the swim cert? How much do I have to pay to keep the certification? Because you have to have your CEUs and continuing education that all cost. And it's, it's as if, oh, well, you know how to do it. So you should be able to do it for the lowest cost possible. If, um, if not the lowest cost, nothing. Um, no, it's even still, you know, I, one of my friends, she had a conversation with me and she said, Shauna, I know that this is getting interesting. You're willing to charge people, but I think you need to charge more. She said, think about it, especially with those of us who have, you know, caretaking responsibilities, people that we love at home that we need to be away from. She said, Shauna, you need need to be charging XYZ amount just because you can't put a value on the amount of time that you're away from your boys. If it's an hour where you're going to teach someone how to swim, you can't get that hour back with your family or with your parents or with whomever that you care about. Or shoot, the hour that you won't get back uh, when you could have invested it in your own training while you're helping someone else. And so sometimes it boils down to, it definitely boils down to your professional skill set, but then it boils down to how much time do you actually have? And for those of us who are coaches, and then, you know, we have another profession that's kind of our bread and butter, uh, all of that, our time is so valuable and precious. We never have enough hours in the day. And Mm -hmm. so I think there's something to be said about, you know, the expertise and, you know, we're exchanging time for money, you know, in many ways. And so how do we do that? Well, because we can't replace that time with other things that we could have been doing. So, you know, that's another thing that I think about kind of constantly. Well, and your comment about going, you know, an hour to teach someone to swim made me think about the fact it's not actually an hour, right? Because depending on where that pool is in relation to where you live, right? You've got your travel time to and from, and there's a cost of gas around Mm -hmm. that, right? Yep. Um, and then maybe perhaps a cost of entry to the pool. And mm-hmm. um, if you're running a coaching business and you have an online um, kind of training 
software thing, there's a, there's a cost of that also. So you have all of these right. um, indirect costs that as a salaried person working in a business, you don't necessarily think about. That was one of the huge right. errors I made when I went out on my own as a coach and as a consultant was that, oh, I don't have a photocopier. I don't have paper. I don't have ink, right? I have to pay all of my gas, all right, of these right. things that I didn't factor into my hourly rate in the beginning. Because if you just take an hourly rate of like $35 or $40 an hour and you 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 multiply that out 40 hours a week or whatever and you get an, an annual salary, that sounds great. But you've got so much stuff that comes off the top of that that um, you actually, it reduces your hourly rate significantly. And I mean, Absolutely. that was that was just, you know, naive lack of, naive meant I didn't have a mentor, you know, and I've, I've learned my lesson around that, but I, but right. so, right. but I'm still held back by this feeling that, um, even though my brain is telling me this, I'm still held back by this feeling that I'm charging too much and I'm pricing myself out of the market and I'm not going to get the contract. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fighting against yourself, even in your own head. And, you know, I, I thought about that too, because, you know, there's things that we have to have in place. And I know it just always, it depends on where you are in your journey as far as formulating a business or a profession. But, you know, for example, the types of insurance that we have to have, or if you need to be bonded, or, you know, if you need professional insurance and so forth. So if someone sues me, then, you know, if they sue me, they, anybody has the choice to sue anyone. So I'm not afraid of being sued, but there are things that you need to put in place so that you're protecting your home or your family or whatever. And so all of that is on top of the service that you're actually providing. And so, you know, the fact that, for example, there's been contracts where, um, you know, I wasn't even able to provide uh, a proposal for the services without proving to them that I already had a million dollars worth of uh, professional insurance. I couldn't even apply for it without proving that. And so, you know, there are right. lots of extra fees that are in place that I, I'm sure people are thinking, look, you're just taking that, you know, $50 an hour to teach me how to swim and, and running off to have a good dinner somewhere. No, that 50 bucks didn't even pay for a quarter of insurance that I needed to make sure that we were both right. protected. Yeah. I'm teaching you how to swim. So, you know, all of those little pieces to the puzzle. And, you know, I'm not saying that everyone has to have all the insurance in place all the time, but, you know, there are mm -hmm. business expenses that people don't really think of because they're thinking about the, um, the value, the inherent value of the work that you do. And it's all included. It's all included because it's profession. Ivan, um, had a friend of mine um, talk to me a little bit about, for example, which I'm still researching, um, uh, Keeman insurance, for example. So, and, and I know that's a, <laughs> a gender-related wor word and title and so forth, but Keeman insurance, from my understanding, is basically if you are the key person that's responsible for the organization, and if, God forbid, anything should happen to you, your organization could not function, the organization needs insurance. So, Let's say I go out right now and something happens to me, but I have, you know, half a million dollars worth of contracts that need to be executed by the end of 2021. I need insurance because we're going to have to pay that money back. Or let's say there's already been um, expenses incurred that we need to pay back. That is the insurance that's needed to make sure that I don't go belly up, if you will, uh, or my family isn't left to go belly up because something happened to me because I already had these contracts in place. All that stuff, I, I am still, I am like 
novice novice you know I, I just know enough to ask the right questions here so please don't think that you know i have you know a ceo experience i don't but what i am saying is that this is all the stuff that's tied into somebody going out on a black on a bike ride with you as a coach these are things that need to be considered and so I just think sometimes we need to, I, I'm glad we're doing this podcast today because we're pulling back the curtain on all those things that right. other folks probably aren't thinking about, um, whether they're entrepreneurs themselves, coaches, all of that, um, or if you're an athlete uh, that benefits from a coach or a consultant, these are all the things to think about. At this point, hopefully mm -hmm. we we have them walk away talking about they need to leave a tip because they, they already right. know that they're uh, undercharged at this point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's that's this is all great information. And I, you know, and it's all true. And it's all legit. And I think that <laughs> that definitely can assist women and men and, and folks um, who don't identify as either right in terms of their calculation around what should they be charging. But I just, yeah, I just I still trip up on this, um, this feeling, you know, and I just had a friend yesterday, um, tell me, something, you know, she's like, I challenge you to go higher in your hourly wage, right? Or your <laughs> hourly thing. And it just, it felt, I had this feeling in my gut, I had this feeling in my gut. So it's totally money ick. That is such a great way to describe it. Mm -hmm. um, and I do oh, think look, Sean Strickland is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, and my friend, Sean, she primarily works with women. So obviously you're not alone in the feeling of it. Um, and so, you know, given that I'm, I'm not quite sure, maybe she's the, the guru on the strategies on how to move through money ick. Um, but um, one of the things that I've heard her say, and I, I try to do this um, and, and we'll see, maybe this could be your homework, Lisa, for moving forward over the next week until we record mm -hmm. again is to, you know, put that amount out there and put the period at the end of the sentence and mm -hmm. put some, uh, what do they call it? A pregnant pause, put some silence there and just let it sit there for a moment and see what the response is. Because, you know, we've talked about it before, how both of us have put a number out there and then we talked ourselves all the way back, you know, oh, well this yeah. consulting work is going to be, you know, four figures. And now we've already talked ourselves back to like less than half of what we threw out there. So, you know, maybe just putting a little silence behind, mm -hmm. okay, I'm putting it out there. That's the end of the sentence and see how they respond. And, and right? that in and of itself is tough. It is so tough to do. Uh, but yeah, yeah we, we got to work. Yeah. Sitting in that, dis <laughs> it's sitting in the discomfort, isn't it? So much of what we talk about is sitting in the discomfort and then because you have to kind of like push through that right. discomfort. Um, uh -huh, uh -huh. You, you had told me a story about um, a ship engine and um, how it was fixed. And I think that might be a great way to end this episode. Would you share it with us? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me see. I'm going to, um, I'm not going to try to remember it because I know my memory will fail me, but I'm going to kind of read as much as possible. Um, but this is a great story that one of my friends uh, who is an entrepreneur shared with me, um, a woman entrepreneur, by the way, and um, a giant ship engine failed. The ship's owner tried one expert after another, but none of them could figure out how to fix this engine. Then they brought in an old man who had been fixing ships since he was a young boy. He carried a large bag of tools with him. And when he arrived, he immediately went to work. He inspected everything in the engine very carefully from top to bottom. Two of the ship's owners were there watching this man do his thing, hoping he would know what to do. After looking things over, the old man reached into his bag and pulled out a small hammer. He gently tapped something. Instantly, the engine lurched into life. 
Then he just put his carefully, uh, carefully chosen hammer away and the engine was fixed. A week later, the owners received a bill from the man for $10,000. What? The owners exclaimed. He hardly did anything. So they wrote the old man back a note saying, please send us an itemized bill. The man sent a bill that read, tapping with a hammer, $2. Knowing where to tap, $9,998. And this is just the best story ever, because first of all, you know, Lisa, of course, I noticed that they were talking about an old man, not an old woman. Right. Clearly, he knew his value. He knew his worth. And I think that, you know, we need to spend more time really reflecting on making sure that we are requiring that people pay exactly what we're worth, not walking ourselves back Um and, you know, continuing to tap that hammer, I guess, Lisa. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love it. Tap the hammer. That's a great way to end. Um, if any of our listeners have struggled like Shauna and I have and have that money ick feeling in your stomach, we would love to hear from you because I'm sure mm-hmm. that there are many endurance sport uh, coaches and the like out there who think about this all the time. Absolutely. Hey, feisty folks. Jamila here, the Feisty Team Community Innovator. In June of 2020, we launched the Feisty Team to help you all stay feisty no matter what the year threw your way. Over the last six months, we've come together as a team to try and make the world a feistier place and connect with other like-minded friends in triathlon and endurance sports. We meet every month and bring in experts that can help us on the path to building feistiness in ourselves and others and create meaningful change in our sport and community. The monthly subscription is only $22 and you'll get monthly feisty huddles and webinars with expert guests, big sponsor discounts, swag and monthly prizes, challenges to stay motivated, a community of feisty like-minded friends. Plus we are adding new initiatives all the time, like our new book club and virtual workouts. Go to feistyteam.com to join us and become a part of the feistiest team in endurance sports so we can crush 2021 together. That is feistyteam.com. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at Try to Defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women in Tri. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>